The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody, and thank you for taking the time to tune in during this busy holiday evening. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm pleased to bring you to our Thanksgiving installment of the series, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We're going to uh, deviate just a bit from our more traditional venues on this program and begin with a focus on what else food, fittingly enough, and specifically the foods that we here in North America are accustomed to eating during the uh, traditional holiday meal. Most of us, I suspect, are somewhat familiar with the edible star of the Thanksgiving meal, the traditional domestic turkey, and perhaps even with its untamed ancestor, the wild turkey, and I don't mean the kind that comes out of the bottle. The wild turkey is a much leaner version of its domestic counterpart, and it was very prolific in the northeastern U.S. in the 17th century when the Puritans reached the New World. Apparently, however, the pilgrims encountered a domesticated form of the turkey that was actually bred by the Aztecs in Mesoamerica and later tamed by the Spanish who brought it back to Europe, where it thrived as a farmyard animal. The turkey became the centerpiece for European festivals, apparently among the wealthy. Some argue, apparently, that the uh, domesticated forms were the ones brought by the pilgrims to New England, and they were unaware that the wild variant was still prolific in the northeastern U.S. Now, I guess it's anyone's guess as to which turkey was exactly feted upon during those harsh winters of the 1620s when the pilgrims and Native Americans shared those first Thanksgiving feasts. In any case, the metamorphosis of the turkey as a culinary item is apparently a very colorful and rich history with clear New World origins and Old World variations. But what about the trimmings and the roots and vegetables that form the balance of the traditional meal? Many, if not most of these foods, have their origins in the New World as well, and their histories can be traced back in time through the archaeological record. And with me to explore the origins and evolution of these foods, as well as other topics related to subsistence and natural environments is Dr. Linda Scott Cummings, the founder and president of the Paleo Research Institute of Golden, Colorado. Linda started her contract company in 1972 
to examine pollen and ethnobotanical remains from archaeological sites. As she worked on the pollen, she realized that a more complete picture of past subsistence involved examining both pollen and seeds. So she learned to identify seeds and charcoal and began to put together sort of composite pictures of what people ate and what the environments that supported those people looked like. By 1989, Linda had achieved her PhD degree and she kept the business going as she was progressing through her educational career. Today, her company, Paleo Research Institute, focuses on integrating a variety of different types of analyses to build muscles of the past climate to interpret past environments and, as we said before, to uh, reconstruct past diets. And as well, she has just opened a branch for dating these remains so that we can put all of these developments in some kind of a chronological order. Her company has 10 employees, all of whom do various elements of the scientific analysis for the company. Uh, she also teaches workshops and does occasional courses in archaeobotany, past diet, and ancient environments. Linda has sat on several boards uh, for archaeology and ancient environmental issues, and it is my pleasure to welcome you, Linda, to the program. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Joe. It's my pleasure. And vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the holiday and the, uh, the trimmings, as we discussed, um, let's talk about the uh, typical Thanksgiving menu and what, uh, what are the traditional foods that came from the Americas and how do you reconstruct where they came from and how they developed and how people utilized them? Well, that's, that has been such an interesting question through the years. Um, and then looking at our traditional meal, we often include squash, which came from Mesoamerica and then um, was taken into both South and North America far before the Europeans arrived on either continent. So it was a staple in the diet of people living here for thousands of years. Um, potatoes had their origin in the Andes of South America, and made their way to Europe before ever coming into North America in any significant quantity. We did have some wild potatoes growing in North America, but they were never domesticated to the degree um, of the potatoes in South America. Um, yams, which we find in the grocery store, are actually mislabeled. They're sweet potatoes. And sweet potatoes also come from South America. And they entered our diet through a circuitous route as well by being introduced to the Polynesians and then later on into North America. Cranberries are something that is native to North America. So we have these from some of our northern parts of the U.S. and southern parts of Canada. Um, tomatoes were brought in um, originating from Mesoamerica, traveling to South America, and they also were introduced to Europe before ever making it back into North America. So some pretty strange travelings of some of these uh, things that we see on our plates for holiday meals and other times of the year. So how do you put the story together? How are you able to actually track the, uh, the or map the, the distribution of these foods, where they came from, when they came from there? How do we date them? How do we know what the circuitous route was? Well, 
those of us working in the field of archaeobotany often specialize in, in one of several type of remains. For me, it was pollen, at least pollen first. So we look for evidence of pollen at archaeological sites. And I should clarify and say, yes, that is the pollen that so many people are allergic to. The plants create or produce the pollen every year, and it is then distributed either on the wind or by insects or other small animals. It lands on the ground, and there it is incorporated into what becomes our soil or sediment through the years. It's amazing that these little things persist and are not destroyed in the soil. And so we see them thousands of years later, even hundreds of thousands of years later, or preserved in the geological record for millions of years. Um, also, the seeds, the seeds of plants, which are also food for other small organisms, usually survive only when they're charred, um, unless they're in a waterlogged situation or a dry cave. So most of the seeds that we see from archaeological sites were the seeds that got dropped and burned accidentally, usually while being cooked or processed um, at a hearth or a, um, a cooking fire. So, so let's talk a little bit again about the, the Thanksgiving foods, cranberries, pecans, yams, squash. Uh, these, uh, these, the evidence for this type of food would be in the form of seeds mainly or pollen or prob- probably seeds, I'm guessing, no? Well, several of them for seeds. So, for instance, the pecans and, and hickory nuts have been eaten in North America for thousands of years, and we find the charred um, shells in sites, in fact, we often get pounds and pounds of charred shells, indicating that people were processing the nuts, often processing the nuts so that they could get the oil off of it because the oil was valuable in the diet as well as the nuts. Um, for some of the foods, we find the pollen. So if you picture an apple, on the bottom of the apple is the um, small dried-up flower that was left, that is going to retain pollen. And every time you sit an apple down, you have the chance of leaving pollen here and there. And if you're a gardener, you'd know that some of the some of the times when you bring in squash, there's a shriveled up blossom on the end. That too will transport pollen. So we see pollen in what was kitchen areas of all sorts of um, archaeological sites. So if you think about the areas in the southwest where people lived in masonry rooms or in pit houses. They had dedicated areas for storage and for food processing. And when you look there, you find a very rich pollen record of the things that they brought in. And it's, I found it very surprising that if you pick, if you pick corn, so you're out there, you pick it, you bring it in and it has the husk on it, you are still transporting the pollen from when the corn was in the soaking stage and the pollen was falling down onto the husk. So nature is, thank goodness, really, really messy. And we get all of these pollen distributed throughout the sites. And then when you find pollen from food, the most reasonable interpretation is that you have some human activity there because most of the or pollen from a lot of the domesticates is not well. Uh, transported on the wind, so it doesn't get into our houses accidentally. 
So, so let's let's have uh, let's have you take us into a real live archaeological situation. Uh, we're going to let's say, for sake of argument, that you're going to a Mesoamerican site. Uh, we'll talk about some southwestern sites a little later, but you're going to a Mesoamerican site. Somebody invites you out to the site, and they say, uh, Linda, you're the expert on reconstructing paleo diet. Uh, you're at the site, you're looking at, say, a domestic area where there's rooms, where there's evidence of, of kitchen activity. How do you go about doing your work? Well, um, I need to have with me a trowel and um, some sampling bags, and we often use common bags like Ziploc bags. And one of the richest areas to sample is the living surface or the living floor of any room. Um because people have always dropped things, and anybody working in a kitchen or any other room that has a hard surface knows that when you drop things or when dust accumulates, just the act of walking will tend to um, move some of these items towards the corners. So we like to look in the corners of rooms and along walls, as well as from the floor all throughout the structure. And the best way to take a sample is to very fine, to scrape a very thin layer from the floor with the trowel and put it in a bag and record that as to where you are in the room. So it's very helpful, for instance, to grid off the floor and then record which grid you were scraping so that you can see how the pollen record or phytolith record, which we'll explain in a moment, relates to the different features such as the cooking fire, or any kind of grinding implements that are on the floor. So take us back just a step here. You're going to go to areas where there is likely to be this type of residue and this type of uh, remnant of, of the ancient diet, and you know where to look. So you go to areas that you say are in the corners of the rooms, and if you're lucky, you'd go to, say, an area where the food was processed. For example, if you find, obviously, something like a mortar and pestle, you would have a specific item that is very likely to have those remains, correct? Yes, and, and when you find the mortar and pestle or a grinding stone, the best evidence comes by washing the surf, that grinding surface of the stone. And that's okay. where you can learn what was ground with that item. And you take the samples, mm -hmm. and you bag them up, and you also, from what I understand, you also take what's known as reference samples. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, reference samples come from areas of the site where you do not expect to have domestic activity or from areas immediately outside the site so that you can get some representation of what we call the natural pollen rain. And that's just the pollen that falls as a result of the plants pollinating every year. And we want to look at the natural background of pollen that we anticipate being in an area so that when we find something different, we can interpret why that was there, what sort of activities might have introduced that pollen. And you're going to do a study of both the natural pollen rain and the actual pollen that's recovered in the features or in the actual cultural activity areas of the site, correct? Exactly. So tell us a little bit about phytoliths and seeds and the various uh, elements of the specific analyses that you do. Okay. Well, phytoliths are 
silica bodies that are produced inside the cells or between cells of some plants. And what happens is there's dissolved silica in our water. And as the plants take that up through their roots, some of them, some of them accumulate silica on the insides of their cells. And when they do this, they're creating the cast of what the inside of that cell looks like. And since the cells of plants are controlled by genetics, we're looking at the shape of the cells within the plants. And what we do is collect many, many plants and look at their cells and look at the phytoliths, which literally translates to plant stones that are recovered from the plants. Once we've identified these by shape from our reference library, then we're ready to look into the archaeological record and see what types of phytoliths that we recover. And from that, we can work back and interpret either the vegetation that grew there or the plants that were processed. Um, one, One of the things that has kind of been a surprise in phytolith analysis was when when we as phytolith analysts began looking at reproductive structures that include seeds because the seeds of plants also tend to accumulate the silica probably as some sort of a protection mechanism and they produce very elaborate sometimes phytoliths that can be identified sometimes to species and sometimes only to genus. So the original phytolith work started out looking at um, plant cells in the leaves of plants and then has branched out to look at the cells of all parts of the plant. And that's been really helpful as we start to use phytolith analysis for looking at foods because there's only a few foods that we eat the leaves of, but there's many, many foods that we eat the seeds. So if you you think of diet, um, sunflower seeds, the cereals that we make bread from are all seeds. Corn on the cob, that's just seeds arranged nicely on a big handle that's convenient for cooking and and eating. So just all sorts of things in our diet are made from seeds. So you're able to establish these connections between what was collected, what grew in the area, and what was actually processed. So you're able to put together sort of a composite picture of what the diet was based on what you're finding in the processing station and comparing that with what you see outside the processing station and in the immediate environment of of the site itself. So you have really careful controls over everything you're collecting, and obviously you are able to put together a, a nice integrated picture of what people are actually doing in these locations. Yes, and, and that's why it's so important to look at the samples outside these structures and outside the cooking and processing areas because once we really understand what's happening in the local environment, we can pick out the differences or anomalies and start to look at those as evidence for food. Um, and we will continue our discussion with Dr. Linda Scott Cummings on pollen and reconstructing ass diets when we return from these messages. News. News. Opinion. 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 
hear me. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra georg.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, we're back again. Joe Schuldenrein, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest this evening is Dr. Linda Scott Cummings, who is an expert on ancient vegetation and ancient diets. And she applies a variety of different types of analyses to reconstruct the environments of human activities and the activities themselves based on the plant residua that are found in archaeological sites. Uh, in that connection, Linda, what discoveries have you made that really gave you the most interesting fix on ancient diets and that actually surprised you about how people ate differently in the past than they do today? Well, Jim, I think it was more about how similar diets were in the past. I was really quite prepared for people to have been living on um, acorns or something that would seem a bit strange. Yet when I looked at the diets of people living in what is now southern Jordan approximately 16,000 years ago, um, and we examined this through the evidence on some pestles that were recovered at an archaeological site, what we found was starch evidence that they had been grinding 
um, cereal grains. And because of what we know about the domestication of cereals, we believe these were wild cereal grains that people were collecting and pounding. And whether they made some sort of a bread product, unleavened bread, or cooked a porridge type of thing, we don't know. What we have is evidence of their pounding. And that surprised me that the use of cereal grains goes back that far. Um, in one way, it surprised me. I suppose it, in another, it did not, because, of course, you would use the native um, grasses before you ever put any effort into domesticating them, so you must must have to know these things pretty well. But one and one of the interesting things that came out of that was to be able to track the processing of some of these grains. So not only with a mortar and pestle, but also as they came out of the fields. So what we learned was that people who used the technology of a threshing sledge, which was developed in the Middle East, um, and it's a, it's a flat sled-looking thing with blades on the bottom that is drawn either by people or animals to chop the straw and release the seeds from the grain. Um, that leaves a signature on the straw, and it actually has the possibility to score and partially cut through the phytoliths, which then snap as either people or animals walk on them. And the amazing thing has been to find some of these cut phytoliths um, in hearts and other samples that I've examined from about 8,000 years ago. So you find the actual phytoliths within a feature or the, uh, an, uh, an area in which people had unquestionably processed this type of food. And, yes, when, when and you get these remains from a fire hearth, for instance, then you know that people were there, some activity took place. And whether they were burning the grass or whether they had animals that were eating the chopped straw that was part of the product of the agricultural field, and then they were burning the dung, we don't and that's, know. And that's really the key there, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of trying to figure this out, because we know, for example, that uh, the sort of the stimulus for domestication was uh, was an observation of naturally growing grains in in the fields, especially in the Middle East, and then domesticated forms emerged as people started to understand what the utility of these grains were. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you differentiate between naturally growing grains and the domesticated variants? I think the traditional feeling or belief in the literature is that the domesticated version is generally smaller and that the wild variant or progenitor is, is larger. Why don't you tell us what kind of advances have been made in trying to make these identifications? Well, People have used size, and um, generally speaking, the act of domesticating will enlarge the part that the people want to eat. So you can go from a fairly small grain and select the largest of those grains to plant each year, and you will automatically begin increasing the size of the individual grains that will become cereal grains or anything else. Um, and it's it's mostly the evidence of human human manipulation or even you could call it human effort. So in looking at what tools were used that leaves their marks 
on the remains that we see, um, it was the realization that the cre- creating the threshing sledge meant that people had a concentration of their resource. They weren't just going out and picking something wild and hoping to have enough of it to process. So, um, as and one can well imagine that through time, the climate changes, and you know whichever direction it's changing, and that if you're used to having a really plentiful resource, um, and the climate changes, and your resource becomes less abundant, then you either have to give up on your resource send part of your population away to live someplace else or get busy and do something so that you can increase the density of that resource as it grows on your landscape. And it's probably the latter, people realizing that they could do this, that led to the plant domestication. So they did what they, they, did what they could or they did what they had to to have their plants grow densely enough and in a confined area so that they could begin to manipulate them, and have a really good source of food, um, which certainly beats sending half your population out to live someplace else. Another example, I guess, of, of, of evolution and, and Darwinian theory in action, where you actually cull and select the populations that are the most productive and which serve the most optimal purposes, and you cultivate them, and you make them grow, and you see that uh, that's how you survive. So um, an excellent argument, I guess, for that. Um, it's that you, you have looked at uh, cereals, and you've looked at domesticated variants. Let's talk more about diet foods people ate. Uh, what are the best records for that? What do we look at archaeologically for that? Oh, well, when you are lucky enough to have them, you will have coprolites or ancient human feces as your very best record because that is the record of what went in the mouth and through the digestive system. And that just gives you a much better, more secure interpretation than the food that was next to the hearth or the food that was spilled on the floor. So um, for some people that sounds very disgusting and for people who work with these remains, we look at it as our pot of gold. Um, right. It's the preservation conditions are fabulous. The pollen survives its trip through the digestive system very nicely and comes out just beautifully preserved, as do, as do the phytoliths and seeds. Now, everything travels through the digestive system at different paces. So what goes in as one meal doesn't necessarily come back out as that meal package. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of there's a lot of room for interpretation there. As was this really eaten with that? So quantity we can't we can't measure the quantity and say, oh look, this was really abundant and that we found only a little bit of. So therefore, they ate a little of this and a lot of that. It's things just they pass at different rates. So your coprolites are basically like your universal catchment basin for all the various indicators of diet, the pollen, the phytoliths, the macrofloral information. You have sort of everything in sort of a nutshell. It's sort well, of like a, a little privy uh, yeah, we, for, yeah, for, exactly. for diet. It's a little, yeah, the little privy because the privy is just a catchment of lots of these little individual things. 
it, on a smaller um, scale, of course, but it has uh, obviously with uh, microscopic techniques and various different types of techniques that you use, you're able to make these identifications. So that takes us to what are the investigative tools that you use once you take your samples from the field and you go back into the lab and do your analysis? What do you? What? How are you doing this? Well, we for some things we're examining for pollen. So of what we've mentioned, the pollen and the, the phytoliths, which are microscopic examinations, they require laboratory extraction techniques and centrifuges and tubes and all sorts of special paraphernalia to recover seeds, charred seeds. We use a flotation technique, um, which is fairly simple because the charred seeds will float and most of the rest of the remains do not. Um, when we're looking for starches and phytoliths, one of the other things we frequently see is starches. So we can intentionally recover for starches or we can see them along with the other remains. But one of the things that does not survive in this same type of record is evidence of meat. And so to get the evidence of meat, we have basically two tools at our disposal. We can look for raw meat, so evidence of killing, cutting, butchering, that sort of thing, by using something called protein residue analysis. And for this, we've taken a test from the field of forensics, and that they use, and so do we, use an antiserum. And this antiserum is made to recognize proteins from a specific animal. And when the antiserum bonds to the proteins that we remove from the artifacts, it will form a line of precipitation, which we can stain and see. So as an example, if we have a group of projectile points from an archaeological site and we test them against, say, 20 or 30 different types of antisera, and one of these points yields a reaction to bison antiserum, then we interpret that because it's a point and it was used um, on a shaft, it was used to kill a bison. Now, if this was on a tool that was uh, for scraping or cutting, we'd have a, a different use determination. But that's how, that's how we identify raw protein, uh, raw proteins from a site. We have one more tool that we have started to use fairly recently within the past decade. And once again, this is borrowed from forensics. We're using, um, we're using a tool with a really long name. The initials, F-T-I-R, stand for Fourier Transform Infrared spectron- Spectroscopy. So what we're doing there That's is That's a mouthful. Using... <laughs> That's a mouthful, yeah. And it, it is, used... yeah uses a beam of infrared light to recognize the bonds between molecules. And for this, we can detect proteins and carbohydrates and um, fats from all sorts of, of contexts. So we can look at cooked foods. Um, people in the past, just like we today, uh, we're quite fond of putting lots of foods in a single pot and cooking them together. And um, it's been quite the experiment to see what those signatures look like. And what one of the things we've learned is 
it's not possible just to have a collection of individual foods as raw items and cooked foods. We have been experimenting by cooking foods in ceramic vessels and then extracting the residue out of those to come up with some signatures for this stew contains bison and corn and squash and beans and maybe some seasonings, um, a little bit of raw onion or a little bit of wild onion collected out in the field. And then we look at the composite signature and see just what we're getting. In fact, that has been so much fun that several professors and their students have asked if they can participate. So you're getting really fairly accurate signatures of your proteins, and you're able to really isolate it with a fair degree of resolution, I guess. Well, in terms of we can tell if it, right now we're stopping at this is a land animal or this is a fish, because we uh-huh. think that for the cooked proteins, that the um, infrared work is not as specific as the um, electrophoresis or the protein specified protein residue work. And we're not sure it ever will be, but it's one heck of a nice tool to say people cooked stew in a pot that included meat and these types right. of vegetables. Give us uh, an example of a site uh, that you have worked on where you have been able to utilize a variety of different types of techniques and generate a series of dietary interpretations based on, let's say, for lack of a better word, all of the analytical tools in your arsenal. I know you've done some work at Mesa Verde, and we talked about Mesa Verde several weeks ago in one of our earlier episodes. Give us, uh, give us sort of a run-through on how Mesa Verde was analyzed by you and your team. Okay. Um, this is one of the places that we've been lucky enough to have some coprolites, and so we were able to look into the diet directly and find out that in addition to the to the cultivated plants that people recognize um, as being typical, the corns, beans, and squash, people ate a lot of plants that they obtained from the landscape. And we recovered evidence that they were eating a plant that we know today as beeweed. It's um, typically a garden plant with a beautiful flower and we don't think of it as being edible. But the people living in the Southwest, the ancient peoples, would collect the leaves of this plant, in fact, leaves, stems, sometimes flowers as well, and cook it down. It makes a wonderful black pottery paint. It also is quite edible. And if you want to store this, you cook, you cook down the leaves and until they make a nice dark mass with not much water, you can dry it on your countertop, on your um, ancient bench, and you can then store these fairly flattened cakes um, for months and months. When you want to use them in some food or reconstruct them for pottery, you get them wet. But often when they were being uh, moistened so that they could be eaten, they then would be fried in grease and served with a meal. And that, to me, was an absolutely fascinating evidence of a truly universal plant. It had so many, so many uses. 
And that we usually see as evident as, as pollen. Um, so that was a pollen part of the record. The, um, the beans are hard to find because mm-hmm. okay. they, the pollen does not transport well into the sites. And unless you spill the beans in the hearth um, and burn them, you don't find them there either. But one of the things that does survive is for people who've eaten green beans, I'm sure you've all noticed how fuzzy they are on the outside. And those are little tiny hook-shaped hairs that, um, that are part of the phytolith record. So they are, uh, they are silicious. They're made of silica. And they have a particular shape to them. And when we find those little hook hairs, which we did in the copper lights, we could say not only did people eat beans, like dried beans that you would make into soup, they ate the green beans. Or in this case, they possibly even stored the beans. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, Joseph Schuldenrein back here at uh, Indiana Jones. Um, we were talking to Dr. Linda Scott Cummings about uh, her analyses of coprolites and uh, paleodietary information from a variety of different sources. Linda, you were talking about Mesa Verde. Can you can tell us what kind of interpretations you generated from that site? Well, one of the interpretations was that people were uh, picking 
their beans, green beans, and storing them and eating them as dried green beans put into any type of food throughout the entire year. Um, and I thought that was a that was a pretty wonderful discovery to have made. This wasn't a seasonal food. Um, they ate the beeweed. They ate a lot of greens and seeds from a plant that we know is goosefoot. Uh-huh. And so it was amazing to find not only did we see the seeds, which we know they eat, and the greens, which we suppose were giving us a lot of pollen, but we found calcium off oxalate crystals, rather like you would find in spinach, in the right. coprolites as well, and that's the plant they were coming from. So um, it's been quite the detective search to see what people were eating. And you were able to put together a composite picture of what people were eating and what grew in the area and what times of year they were using it. Uh, what kind of information did you generate about climate? Well, um, when you collect the samples vertically from sediments that have accumulated over time, then you get to see the differences in the climate through time. So one of the things that we've noticed is um, that when there is drought that people have suffered, the vegetation in the local communities changes as well. So a record that goes through time um, will show us how the vegetation changed and then what we know about the different plants helps us interpret whether people were living through a drought, whether they had an abundance of crops, an abundance of good weather that would produce the vegetation that they need both for subsistence to survive for food and also to make their houses. Um, but, but here's the question on that. Uh, you, have, you have a signature for the climate. You also have a, cl- a signature from the cultural adaptation to that climate. The question I think many people would have is when do you determine that tastes have changed? Uh, are they directly related to climate? How do you call that out? When do you find that people's preferences changed? And, and how closely is that related to environment and climate? What, what's your fix on that? Well, we could go back to the Mesa Verde area. The um, the drought at the end of the 12th century, from AD 11, 1175 to 1200, was um, a really big deal, and it's been it has been identified through tree rings in particular. So, as the trees received less water, they their rings became closer and closer together, right. and people living in Mesa Verde at that point had the choice of either to abandon their homes or to make some changes in their diet. And in looking at one site in particular, what we saw was both happening. Fewer rooms were occupied, according to the archaeological work done, and the foods that they were throwing away. So looking at their midden, their trash heap, what we noticed was there really wasn't much remains from corn anymore and lots more remains from the native plants, from beeweed and goosefoot and other plants. And it wasn't until a lot of people moved away from this village that the ratio of plants thrown out indicated that for the few people remaining, they were able to grow at least some corn. So 
we don't think people's taste changed to all of a sudden want to live off all these greens. We think that they were having crop failure after crop failure after crop failure, which pushed a lot of people out of the area. So you have a variety of different checks and balances on the system that enable you to make these interpretations. Right. 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 And it's and it's usually by doing multiple analyses and coming up with multiple lines of evidence that we come to the conclusions. It's it's usually not just one thing. Right. Now I know you've generated uh, several climatic models based on your pollen and your paleo dietary work. Why don't you talk to a little bit about the climatic models that you have been able to generate, and in what part of the world do they seem to hold up the best? Well, the climatic modeling that we do involves a mathematical uh, a mathematical base that um, we enter into it, into that information from the last thirty years of climate records. So we go out and we get the information from the climate stations that has all been stored, and for the United States. Um, all this information is available on the Internet. And we take the information from 1961 through 1990. It's a nice 30-year span that gives us enough variability to work with, and the model was set up to do this. We put this into a computer program and check to see that the modern information is giving us, is after it's been through the mathematics, is still giving us accurate information about the present, and then you can run the model back into the past. What this model is using is information based on the amount of volcanic activity during each century for the last however many thousands of years we want to run, and we'll usually run this back 12 to 16,000 years. Um, so all of, all of this resides inside the model. We don't add it. Once we get an output that shows us temperature and precipitation variability in the past, we compare that with a pollen record or phytolith record or preferably both that we've done from an area and say that during a particular few centuries or thousand years, um, the pollen record shows an abundance of trees. There were more conifers growing in an area and maybe uh, less sagebrush and less grass. With the expansion of the trees, what we would anticipate to see in the climate model is colder weather and perhaps uh, probably more precipitation. So we're looking to see if the model is being verified by the pollen because the pollen right. records are, are very well accepted as representative of vegetation that did grow, not, not that's hypothesized to grow. Right. Um, this is a model that we both worked on, obviously, in our joint research in, yes. in, in a couple of projects. Um, your, uh, what, what I think is intriguing for people to learn about is environmental pollen and what that does because we know that uh, deep coring in ancient lake basins absorbs a tremendous amount of pollen that enables you to reconstruct landscape history and climate history and vegetation history together based on a single uh, database 
that can be broken out into components. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the vertical successions that you pick up from pollen in Coring Lake basins and uh, landscapes that register ancient, ancient and prehistoric uh, sedimentation? Yes. <laughs> the, um, the pollen that is deposited, especially in lake basins, where you get a nice consistent deposition and you're not um, having to deal with a record that is partially missing as a result of erosion, um, you get this uh, nice sequence that um, records the vegetation growing around the lake. And we can see changes through time so that when the, when the vegetation growing there was um, growing during a cold and relatively wet period like the end of the last glacial period, we have the expectation of seeing more conifers and more plants of certain types. And that's what we pick up in the pollen record. Um, okay. I think we're going to have to uh, wind down at this point. I want to thank my guest, Linda Scott Cummings, for acquainting the listenership with yet another direction taken by archaeological research in the 21st century. We'll be back a week from today to discuss the changing pedagogy of professional training in archaeology. How are the professors and instructors grooming their students to cope with the challenges of the archaeological profession in this day and age? The realities of these new times demand significant modifications to the way students and professionals receive and apply their training, and we'll look at these shifts in the next episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.